Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. She's Anne Friedman. She is Aminatuso. On today's agenda, we are talking about American Dirt, who the big literary machine backs and uh, who it doesn't back, and also our weird 90s fashion trauma. Look at that. Um, what is it? Week 17 of the year? Week 10? Week 5? We're still doing it. Week 666. <laughs> I know. What week is it? Is, the, is it still February? I am emotionally still in January. This whole year is January for me. It. W- <laughs> I don't really know. What is time? You know, the problem is that like January is 700 days and then the rest of the winter just kind of flies by. Right. I mean, technically, we are like halfway through February. Like, high consumerist holiday Valentine's Day is upon us. And that is the halfway point of this month. We are there. (laughs) (laughs) Definitively. This is is adult life. Just counting down the calendar until you die. Um, Okay. How you doing over there? You know, counting down the calendar until I die. I'm fine over here. Uh, are you reading any are you reading any fun books lately oh man i mean i am reading the patrick radden keefe say nothing book which is about uh it is sort of like a tiktok uh reported historical account of uh the troubles in northern ireland it is kind of intense i am um i love the troubles Love the Troubles. It's a favorite historical period of mine. Thank you. I am interspersing it with a gift that a friend recently got me, which is the illustrated Greek myths. So like, like a child, after, after I read my like, you know, stories of, um, you know, sectarian violence and intense cultural conflict, I open up the illustrated Greek myths and I read one illustrated story and put myself to bed like a toddler. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love this. I thought you were going to say that your friend gave you the new novel American Dirt by Janine Cummings. Oh my God. That was an artful, artful transition. I'm applauding you from over here. Um, are Dun-dun! you reading are you are you reading a seminal American novel, American Dirt? And you know that fiction is hard for me, so I am likely not reading American Dirt. But I have to say that I was in a bookstore recently, um, a bookstore that I really like and that I go to. And uh, they all of the discarded uh, like promo materials of American Dirt were like all in a pile in a corner somewhere. And I was like, wow, this is like when you thought you were going to have a party, but the surprise got ruined, you know. So just to catch everyone up on American Dirt is a novel by Janine Cummings that was a. I, you know, like I believe announced as an Oprah book club pick, like the latest Oprah book club pick. Indeed. And also was was a novel that um, was even, I believe, I believe, prior to Oprah choosing it, received a lot of attention because she received a rather large advance and the buzz machine, for lack of a better word, there was buzz even before there was Oprah. Right, man, this is actually like a very good like book industry scam to stay on because it's a scam in like almost every industry, right? If you invest a lot in something, then you are invested in it being a thing. And... 
um, this is this is how like the book sausage machine gets made. Like I wonder when the last time was that a big book club picked a book that received like a very small advance, you know, that like no one knew and then they just like kind of found it. And I was like, that probably has never happened. Right, like that a book published by a small independent publisher was a success that made the bestseller list and was picked by all of these big books booksellers. It's like, no, no, like the, the machine is alive and well. And, you know, much like all the complaints that we have about political parties or like movie making where um, certain winners are kind of preordained, like the same thing applies to big publishing. Shocker, shocker, shocker. Wow. So you mean that organic success is like does not exist. Okay, got it. Right. So the story is a lot of people um, were invested in American Dirt. The, the machine was very much behind it. Like, I think that's, the, that's like an important thing to know. Should we talk about the, the content of this novel? Well, okay. So the book is, it's the fictional story of a Mexican mother and her son and their journey to the border after a cartel murders the rest of their family. Um, right. They're I living believe, in Mexico when the book opens. Correct. Right. I believe like that's the that's the headline of this book. Mm-hmm. And I man, sorry, I'm still stuck at like the machine working because I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like now, now we're going to tell you everywhere that you can be uh, a little pebble of sand that like grinds the machine down to a halt. <laughs> and so I find that I'm always like kind of on the outside of this conversation because big book Twitter is not a Twitter I engage in. Fiction is not a Twitter I engage in either. But this one was like, you know, this reached me on my various channels. So I feel that like like a lot of feelings were had. You know, so it's like the the book has obviously been like the subject of a lot of controversy and criticism now uh, after those like early readers started reading about it. So you know, like people have called it a stereotype. People have said that it was appropriative. The New York Times, like book review for it is iconic. Not because it actually like engages with whether the book is like, uh, you know, like cultural appropriation or whether it's a stereotype, but because it actually engages with whether the book is good or not. It's like the, like the reviewer found that the writing was, was bad. There are indictments on many levels to be had here. Right. If if this book has made it onto your radar, it's probably been accompanied by a word like controversy or like dust up or something like that. Right. Like about um, if you if you are not like deep in literary Twitter, which like I am not either like someone I, I definitely heard about this, like from a friend as as it was becoming more of a conversation. I believe the day the New York Times review came out and the day that um, the writer Miriam Gerba published her review of it as well. And so anyway, this book, what the, I'm air quoting here, controversy is about, is about the fact that this, the woman who wrote this book, who writes in the introductory or the end materials, I forget which, about how many years she researched this book and about how she identifies as white. And I believe, I believe she has um, a Latina grandparent um but well, you know but, let's let's get into that because right that's, it, that's an interesting kind of thing right like which so, is mentioned often in descriptions of her race of her race right so 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 the accusation is that the book is doing brown face lol um if that's well if that's the thing that you can be accused of i guess or and also i mean i wouldn't say necessarily just brown face but also perpetuating some harmful stereotypes about mexico about people who choose to emigrate about places that are not the United States of America that are on this continent too. Like, I think that like brown face is definitely a part of it, but then there is also this kind of larger issue of representation and how this author is representing a pretty broad and diverse set of people and places. 
Right. And the thing about this, uh, the first thing that like people argue about with things like this or how this conversation always reaches me is people will say like, well, can white people never write about blah, blah, blah? Can straight people never write about gay people? Can you know, like there's always like a thing. It turns out that if you're someone with privilege, you feel very aggrieved about what stories you can and cannot tell. And I find usually that that line of questioning is very disingenuous because it's not about like what you technically as a person of privilege like can do. It really is the reality of like who has the privilege to stand in your shoes, right? And to do this. It's interesting because the conversation about this book for me happened like uh, after I read Edna O'Brien's book, A Girl. Edna O'Brien, I believe, is Irish. Um, she's something she is like uh, Irish. This. Yeah. So I, so, I, so I like read this book written by an Irish woman where the narrator is a girl that lives in like central northern Nigeria. And the story is like around like Boko Haram, like terrorism. And it was so well done. It's one of my it's like one of the best fictions I've ever read. Um, like a friend gave it to me to read and it really, um, it was so like the thing that I needed to read. And then I was like, oh, the writer is like none of these things. And look at that. The story did not feel exploitative. It didn't feel bad. There was no controversy around like, did she get to tell the story or not? And I was like, well, you know, maybe the first line of the first bar of entry into this, like, can you do this thing? Like tell a story that's not your story. It's just maybe it should just be good. Right. And I think often when people criticize a work by a white identifying writer about someone who is not white or a work by a writer with sort of like more social privilege about about anyone who is does not share that privilege the critique is often like what that no one no one white can can write from another perspective and i think actually anyone can write whatever the hell they want it's just that everyone else is allowed to evaluate whether it's compelling and successful and actually a good piece of writing and so like your point about the first metric being is this good is yeah. Like no one is saying like this shouldn't have been published or read at all. The question is, is it working? Like that is a reviewer's job and right. a critic and a reader. Mm -hmm. Is it working? Did you succeed in doing the thing that you're doing? And also how is it making people feel? I think that I obviously like um, do not plan on reading American dirt so that, you know, like that's someone else's job. But I think that like in this era where like everyone is like challenging whatever they think political correctness is or talking about cancel culture or not and you know like things that I don't believe exist. I find it like really dismaying that when someone tells you that you have hurt them or that you are harming them, your response can be, but I did a lot of research or I wrote a really good book about it or you know what I mean? I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like people, people are actively describing like how they are hurt from something that you have done and how you are not representing them and how you are actually like probably perpetrating a lot of stereotypes and harm in something that you thought you did really well and your response, your immediate response is to defend yourself. Like that is, that's like kind of like an eye popping, like eye opening moment for me. I, d I truly do not understand that impulse. Yeah, there's a great essay written by Brandon Taylor, who also has a novel that's out right now that is definitely where you're not, the money you're not spending on American Dirt should go to his novel, Real Life. Yes, but, um, Real Life. Ooh. But he wrote something about this that as with all things related to discussion of privilege, like so often it defaults to, hey, why can't the person with more privilege write this? Is, isn't it sad that they are like hamstrung? And in fact, um, I, I want to read this little um, excerpt of uh, his essay about, you know, writing a Cross identity lines. So he writes, I think that the trauma that marginalized people feel when they read problematic stories about themselves is real. 
I think watching an author strip away your humanity or flatten the complexities of your life and your experience into a couple of sentences meant to prop a secondary character is an awful thing. But I do not think that the author sets out to do that. I think that we must be able to hold two things in our mind at the same time. We must be able to honor the trauma that marginalized people feel when a story does violence to them. And we must also be able to discern the cause of the story's failure. And I just like that really summarizes for me the fact that it kind of doesn't matter that Janine Cummins didn't set out to write a book that made people who are of Mexican descent or who have a history of immigration or who have any Latinx identity or anyone who read this book and felt bad. She did not set out to make them feel bad. And yet still a really big problem. Right. It's also then like interesting to see how all of this, you know, like how the machine also is reacting to this, right? The book is an Oprah book club pick. The book is in the New York Times book review section. Another author, Lauren Groff, gave the book, like I would say like an ambivalent, but like leaning towards positive review. And that person was white, the person who like gave this review. And so just seeing how everyone is reacting also informs how the people, you know, like the people on the sidelines react. And so the publisher comes out and is very, you know, like puts their foot down and it's like, we stand by our author. We're like, blah, blah, blah. We're doing this whole thing because obviously they have a huge financial interest to protect. And as someone who used to work in PR, I love to read like crisis PR statements because every time I see them, I just shake my head. I'm like, you are not paying enough money for this bad advice that you're receiving. This is all bad. (laughs) Um, But anyway, again, because for me, it's all about like people telling you that you have done harm and violence to them and how do we respond to it? And every response that I saw from this was like very inadequate. And then we move into the phase of the of the thing where the publisher decides that they are pulling the author off of book tour because of violent threats that they have received. And this is where I like the rage started burning in me because the threats are unidentified and the way that they are really phrasing it is like, Oh, people were mean to our author on Twitter and critique is the same as violence. Not like people are, you know, like someone has actually threatened to like come blow up a building that she was in. And to be clear, I'm not condoning like any kind of like, I don't think that like any kind of violent response is appropriate. What I'm questioning is whether like the violence that they said was there was in fact there. And there is no evidence to that. Right. I mean, we don't know. Like, frankly, I don't know what's in Janine Cummins inbox or whatever. I mean, what I what I do know is that it seems pretty obvious that like, with everything we know about the, as you say, the machine getting behind this book, that they sort of made a calculation that it is better to not have people show up and ask these really difficult questions to her face or potentially even protest her mm-hmm. book events. It is better It is better to avoid that altogether than it is to go out on tour. That's really, that's, that's what I feel like we really know about this. And it's also worth noting that Miriam Gerba, who I mentioned, wrote one of the you know, initial, very full-throated critiques of this book. And you should also read Miriam Gerba's book, Mean. It's excellent. Anyway, Miriam Gerba has also been on the receiving end of a lot yeah. of very violent threats. And I think that it's not to say that I, I mean, like like I say, I don't know what is actually happening in the lived reality of Janine Cummins' life. But I do know that like Miriam has been very open about what she what she has received for for speaking out about how this book is hurtful and does not align with her own lived experience. So, right. And, and the reason yeah. that I, but the reason that I bring it up is for exactly this point, right? Of like, who has the privilege of being protected by institutions? And so when the institution is who is telling you like, oh, our author is threatened and blah, blah, blah. And all, and there is no transparency around it. 
all we are seeing is, you know, like all we are seeing is what we are seeing with our own eyes. And it just seems very disingenuous then to leave people with less power, like kind of hanging in the wind. Like there are there are so many other writers who are subject to threats and to violence just for speaking out their opinions every day. And I don't see like publishers rallying around them to protect them. Right. Well, and I mean, I don't see them rallying around those writers to give them very, very lucrative book deals in the first place. I mean, like, you know, we... Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. I mean, it's not even just about supporting them on the back end. It is like really what's going on here. Do I care? Like Janine Cummins can write whatever novel she wants. Fine. It's like where I start to get upset is what is the system backing whose story about what is being deemed worthy of uh, being consumed or being promoted on a widespread level. And I think that this is one of those stories where the audience for this book or the perceived audience seems to me to be pretty centered in like a white North American upper middle class sort of like oh, this is far from my personal and familial lived experience. Like that, the audience, it's, it's less about like, does this author have the right like to, to, to write about this topic? It's, for me, it's more about like, where is the lens and like, who is really the implied reader of this? Because, you know, one of the things that Miriam Gerba had to say in her critique is the main character in this book seems continually shocked by like how awful her own country is day to day. And, you know, that is much more of an impression that someone who is not familiar with the dynamics written about in this book might feel, right? It's more of a, um, you know, I think Miriam uses the phrase through the eyes of a pearl clutching American tourist, like not mm. through the eyes of someone who is actually close to and invested, um, you know, beyond stereotype. Wow. So maybe the question is not, do you have the right? Is do you have the range? And Do you have the range and the resources? Yeah. She does not have the range. She doesn't have the range. She so, doesn't have the no. range, but she does have the resources, which is dangerous. I know. Just enough that you can be dangerous. Okay. Case closed. Next case on the docket. Oh, my God. Can I have like a like an addendum to this story, though, um, that I, I want to just... I, I'm going to put a plug for this in the show notes is that um, I read a really interesting essay this week about the practice of italicizing words and like which air quote foreign language words get italicized in English language text and how that is also political. Because one thing I did notice in a lot of the critiques of this book were people saying, oh man, like every word that appears in Spanish is italicized. And if you are actually, you know, your day-to-day reality includes speaking Spanish or a mix of Spanish and English, like offsetting it with italics is a very weird choice to make. And anyway, so I'm going to link to this essay for like, for like our fellow word nerds who want to think about um, this on a level of even like punctuation (laughs) and formatting, because that is even a part of this story too. And like one more addendum, because I do feel that like we are, you know, like there is the thing with stuff like this also is that the minute you start digging, you find more, right? It's not that Mm -hmm. this author is just like a, like maybe a white lady with maybe a Puerto Rican grandma who is writing about this. It's that there are so many missteps here. One of the, one of the conversation points for like why she was a racially sensitive person is they like, you know, people kept saying that she had a husband who was undocumented and then you do two Googles and the undocumented husband is Irish or looking at like other mistakes that she had made, like these like barbed wire centerpieces that a bookseller was using, all things that are like very offensive when you're trying to tell stories about what is going on at the border again. So it's just use your whole, uh, you know, like use all of your resources, but also be someone who is 
I, like, I would not say above reproach because no one is above reproach, but be really honest about the kind of life that you're living and take responsibility also for the ways that you are actively offending people. Offending people is not a fireable offense. What is the fireable offense is gaslighting them and making them believe that you weren't doing that in the first place. Oof. Yes. And also, like, you know, this is not a defense of the author, but like when I when I saw, for example, the photos of those barbed wire centerpieces, I was immediately like, oh, yeah, because this is like a machine backed book. Like this is like a book that people really, really had a lot invested in it succeeding. And it's just like it's like when you see brands tweet about like, you know, MLK's birthday to call back to a recent episode, you know, or it's like it's like this really wrong headed like you think you are like engaging in some kind of deep way with um, with something that you are really, in fact, like, perverting. Right, you know, and it's, and, you know, and also, like, it's the publishing industry we're talking about here. You know, like, you and I went through several <laughs> rounds of meetings with publishers when we were selling our book, and I don't think that it is fair to say that we met even a handful of people of color. Like, I don't think that that is even a fair, um, that's like a, that is like over-representing, like, what happened. I think the numbers are 17 meetings and I think we saw like maybe two or three people of color, like not, not like, you know, like saw them around the table all day long. And by 17 meetings, we mean like 17 teams, you know what I mean? So of multiple people. And it's just like, I like reading about how this like book snap, like snafu is made is, you know, you're like, like, look at who we're talking about here. It's so convenient to like put the author out to, you know, like to dry and it's like, oh, like it's her fault and she shouldn't have written this book and she shouldn't have whatever. And it's like, yes, all of that is true. But also like there's literally no one to protect you. Maybe if there were um, not white people at your publisher, someone would have said that, uh, you know, a barbed wire fence for a book that like (laughs) says that it's it's about like bringing humanity to what migrants are going through is not an idea that someone would have had. So it's just a. it's it is really tiring and tiresome and just very gaslighty to keep having these conversations. Right. This is why the focus has to continually be on like the bigger systems, right? Like the bigger systems about like who isn't selling books for a lot of money, the bigger systems about how this like kind of like winner winner take all like notion and all the winners happen to be white people picked by like a white publisher. It's like, you know, the way that like the blurbs for this book are all these like really over the top, like, you know, praise, praise heavy, you know, big names, like all of that stuff doesn't just happen. And so like part of this is like, you know, like we talk about being a critical consumer of news all the time, but I think like, you know, this is about being a critical consumer of culture. And I think sometimes when it comes to things like art or books, like if you are not um, immediately in that industry, it can be hard to know like the way the machine works, right? Like you and I didn't know any of this stuff, like like in in the kind of way that we do now. Like I I find myself thinking about like how would I react to the story if uh, if it had come out if it had come out like three years ago before you and I had had direct experience in publishing. And yeah. I don't I don't know the answer, but I do know that like this stuff is very opaque and not apparent to the people who might be like just inclined to pick this book up because it's Oprah's book club, you know? Right. It's not. And it's also just like realizing how, and you know, like we talked about this when we talked in the, in the bad bosses episode, we talk about this in any time we talk about these power structures, 
it's really realizing that like once you get in bed with these people, no one is looking out for you and no one is protecting you. You know, like it's either like you you adopt the party line and you're still a low level enough player that no one gives a shit about what happens to you and all you have is your own compromise values. But I think that you're right to like keep shining the lens on the system. And this is why we say that it's not personal. It's systematic because the system is what is really deeply messed up. Mm-hmm. It's structural. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Does somebody sell merch about this? Uh, oh my the God. scam is structural. Uh, Shopcyg.com. Let's take oh my a break. God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Someone is getting mad that I'm getting good at radio. You won't let me shine anymore. You know what? I am not mad. You cannot see my face. I am delighted over here. I am so happy. I could not be happier. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a small stretch break. Okay. We were just trying to figure out like something that is lighthearted to talk about. And uh, well, here is what I came out with, which is that I am processing a lot of feelings about chunky soled shoes being in style right now. Well, okay. Tell me your feelings because I, I have a lot of damage of like being someone who always had the biggest feet of everyone they knew. So when like, and now like the marketplace caters a little bit more to me. But shoe trends are things that I like. I don't even let myself like think about them because there's only two pair of shoes I can ever own. I I have never felt this close to you. I don't think I really like. I feel very <laughs> like I I honestly like like feel a lot of anxiety about shoe trends as well for like the for the, a different reason, which is that every inch I add in my like uh, to the soles of my feet it, like actually has an impact on how I live out in the world. Like two inches or less doesn't really impact it, but like say if I am taking public transportation and wearing like a two inch heel, it's like now I'm in the range where I'm like duck to get on the bus or like on the subway and like Mm -hmm. you know just like it's affecting how I mean more tree branches are smacking me in the face like it is a real it is a real issue wow so you can't live your like sporty spice dream life like that could have never been your spice well interesting you reference 90s icons the spice girls because the chunky sold shoe trend like first was a part of my life in the 90s when i was way less comfortable in this body that i have which was the same size back then and it was a really difficult thing like listen the rocket dog platform flip-flop era where like every like girl in my junior high was wearing like an extra four inches of just foam underneath i'm literally gonna have to google that because i don't even know what you're talking about 
It's a nightmare. Ro- if you go- yeah, please Google dog, rocket platform flip flop. <laughs> I'm like screaming already. <laughs> This, this country is disgusting. Um, or like the super thick sold sketcher, I think was also very big. Like in Google my... image search won't even know this shoe. Yes. Oh no. So, okay. so it is not a million miles away from the kinds of shoes that are like very high fashion right now. You know, like they're all like extremely chunky. And the thing is, it's like, I appreciate like aesthetically what's going on. Like I understand that like, trends come and go like we're in a moment of like collectively looking back at 90s fashion whatever fine cool but for me it is bringing out this stuff where I'm like oh I thought I was totally fine being a foot taller than every other woman and I'm like oh now all the cool shoes I want to wear have like a minimum like you know three inches of platform sole happening and now I'm forced to choose like am I really comfortable in my body or am I gonna like continue buying a shoe that I feel like is not really having its moment like it's it's making me feel very junior high and it, this is why I love your comment about it bringing out your feelings about your own body and feet well so here's the thing um are we talking about chunky like sneakers specifically or are all the shoes being chunky right now well we're talking about chunky sneakers but I also think like what's happening in boots is like a like a pretty like you know like a pretty heavy sole is going on as a general trend I mean, the reason that like this doesn't stress me out is that if I'm ever like prone to a trend, I always want like the most expensive version of the trend, which I can't afford, which means that I don't participate, you know? So it's like, it's just like inoculating yourself via not being wealthy. Don't uh, worry, there are <laughs> giant Gucci sneakers that you could covet and then inoculate yourself. From. I know, remember? <laughs> no, trust me, I've tried them on at the Gucci store. <laughs> but here's the problem. Like, it's it's this thing that we're talking about, right? It's like, I am a size 12 shoe foot. Um, and I can't add, um, I can't like the bulkier a shoe is the more like cloppity clop I look. And so like I, uh, I recently and ordered Doc Martens cause I thought that was going to be my winter shoe. And I think there's something is weird with the Doc Martens sizing, like unclear. But anyway, I got the size of the website said I should get. And then when the shoe came, I thought I was like Hagrid in Harry. Like it was. It was wild. like a clown shoe. <laughs> it was wild. Not only was it a clown shoe, my foot was too big in the shoe. I was like this, like not. Oh, sorry, the shoe was bigger than my foot. Like it was like I just couldn't understand it. And then I tried those other ones, the Australian ones that everybody loves, the boots. Long story short, like big people with big feet have like a lot of problems. But I have made so much peace with the fact that like. I'm okay with trends because whenever I see the chunky soul trend, I'm just like, oh, you know what? The smaller girls, this is their moment to shine right now. And that's fine. And then the trend will pass and then it'll be back to me again. And it's fine. I was like, everyone gets their son under the like the bad trends like situation that we have. I hear that. And I also, but I think that what I'm reacting to more is, is about how it is bringing up feelings about my body that I thought I had resolved. Fair, you know what I mean? Fair. Like that is really, I'm like, I agree. I'm like, yes, yes to like, you know, people who want to be wearing like a lot of soul, even in a comfort shoe, like love this moment for them. <laughs> love it. But you know, it's interesting because like I, so I was like a teen in the, in the late nineties, which is like an era that is oft reference right now in kind of like popular fashion and there's all these other trends like chokers or like you know like like multiple kinds of plaids or like just like the mm-hmm. the the everything else that's happening that's kind of 90s throwback I take a great pleasure in like I don't feel any kind of way 
way. Either I wore it or I didn't as a teenager, but it's not like, it's not bringing anything up for me. And for some reason, when I get to shoes, like I always thought Doc Martens were very cool when I was a teen, but not only could I not afford them, I was like in the converse price range, if you know what I mean. Also, the, the heel <laughs> was like, the heel was like, like an intent. I was like, oh my God, it's like over, it's like a, it's like a full inch. I couldn't wear it. Like, you know, I you had know, like a lot you of know body what insecurity. It is, Anne. Yeah, you know what it me. is, Anne, is that I think that some body things we truly just get over and that you forget about them and other <laughs> and other body things you just sublimate them and unless you actively actually like release the thing there's always a chance that it'll just come back right up and so it's one of these uh sorry if i sound like a therapist but it's no just i love like, it it's just one of these things that i was like you know i think that sometimes we um I don't know, like when you're an evolved person and you're like, okay, I used to have these like feelings about X, Y, Z. We don't always appreciate that some feelings that we have let go of, we actually had to do work for, you know, it was like, okay, you process them out loud and then you, you kind of release them. And then other things, it was never that you were okay with them. It's kind of that you've forgotten. And so now that you're being reminded, you have to like find a way to deal with that. So, you know. Right. Or, or counterpoint in my case, which is that I thought I had dealt with it and I was just like, oh, it's you again. Like you, right. like, I mean, the Babadook. Yeah, the Babadook, <laughs> the Babadook of body feelings. But this is what I'm saying is that I think that sometimes we just like, you know, it's like the, the things that you tell yourself versus the things that are actually true. And so, um, you know, I'm sorry that it's bringing out these uh, tall girl TM feelings for you, but I, uh, I am here for you to process this. And your therapist is also here for you to process this. So let's. Oh, my it. God. Can I tell you, though, like that, that like by and large, the fact that like a fashion trends that were very popular when I was a teen are now popular mostly brings me pleasure. Like I love seeing like a woman wearing multiple things that like would have never been worn by the same girl in the nineties. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I just like there, it makes me feel like God where I'm like, Oh, I know the context for those three items separately, but you weren't alive then. And it's just like, I'm just, I'm also having a pleasures of aging moment at the same time. I gotta say it's beautiful. Let me tell you what does, what brought that all up for me was when that cold shoulder, that cold shoulder trend was happening two years ago. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't I didn't even know I like had feelings about my shoulders. I didn't even know. And then it all came out. Um, you know, and then thank God no one is doing that anymore, so it's fine. Wow, this too shall pass. Yeah, this too shall pass. Um, you know, we'll oh. we'll we'll deal with it as a family. It's fine. Wow. Like shoulders, feet, like we we are really finding all of the ways. <laughs> Um, but also, next time I see you in person, can we just go try on chunky, uh, chunky sneakers Ugh. to Lowell? We're obviously not going to buy them. I just want to Lowell with you. This reminds me of the time, I don't know if you remember this, a million years ago when we first became friends, you somehow came into possession of like a very high spiky pair of like fancy heels. Do you remember this? And you like, I like tried them on. They were they were my size, not yours for some reason. And I tried them on in the like carpeted living room of my old house and I like couldn't even stand on them. Oh my gosh. And I remember this moment, but I don't remember where the shoes were from, but they were very fancy. I know. I was like, how did you come into possession of fancy stilettos in my size? Anyway, um, I feel like us going to try on chunky shoes together is going to be the equivalent of me like baby giraffing it in those stilettos, like gripping the wall for support oh my <laughs> gosh. many years ago. We got this. I will see you at the Balenciaga store to try the chunky slip, this chunky sneakers. Oh my God. See you at Gucci. Ah. <laughs> Bye, boo-boo. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. 
You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.